the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Thursday, August 10th, 2023. I am Seth Leibson. I've got Mr. Bill to my north. I've got producer David Dahl to my west. And for all the cardinal points on the rest of the compass, any of you want to join us, you can do so by calling 602 508 That's 602 960. What is required in a joke for a statement, sentence, for a story? What is required for it to be a joke? Something said or done to provoke laughter, especially a brief oral narrative with a climactic humorous twist, Merriam-Webster tells us. I was thinking about this as President Joe Biden invited Peter Ducey to cross a physical barrier yesterday so as he could ask him a question And Ducey asked Joe Biden about revelations from his sons, Hunter's business partner, testifying that Joe Biden was on calls with Hunter and business associates. And Joe Biden then snapped at Peter Ducey, saying it was a lousy question. And Ducey asked why, and Biden said, quote, because it's not true, close quote, and then walked away. In that 15 or so seconds, a lot took place. First, Joe Biden contradicted not only his White House counsel's office, but his press secretary, who had been saying he, Joe Biden, was on calls, but they weren't about business, even as Joe Biden said he never was on those calls at all. Second, in the rules of language, a question is a question. A question is not a good or bad question because it is or isn't true. If I ask a swindler, say, how did you make all your money? The response cannot rationally be it isn't true. It was a question. It's the answer that's true or not, never the question. And when it comes to Joe Biden, his answers are either true or not. And his answers are contradicted by, again, Hunter's business partners, his press secretary, and his counsel's office. But a question cannot be subject to a judgment of truth or falsity. It's a question. It's not a proposal. It's not a declarative sentence. That's what makes a question a question. I'm sorry for this rudimentary or seemingly rudimentary explanation, but this is classic Joe Biden. And most of us thought we dismissed and dispensed with this kind of nonsense with the governor and the best little you-know-what in Texas. But this is Joe Biden changing all forms of language in a world only he exists in, including his use of the word literally for things that are substantially false. Like two days ago when he said the Grand Canyon is, in his words, literally one of the nine wonders of the world, close quote, which it isn't, and which, of which there are not even nine. It may seem like a small thing, but there is a reason, after all, most of us learned the story of the emperor and no clothes in our youth. The leadership of the incapacitated is not a good thing. This all took me back to a moment in the 2020 campaign when Joe Biden went on a family bike ride in Delaware and invited the press in what was clearly a photo op to make him look vim and vigorous. A Fox reporter shouted to him, have you picked a running mate? Biden shouts back, yeah, I have. 
Who is it? The Fox reporter shouted back. And Biden shouts back, you. Immediately, the media gave us headlines that Biden joked about his VP pick. Quote, Biden says he's picked his VP, then jokes it's a Fox News reporter. Close quote. That was one such representative headline. Quote, Biden claims he's picked a veep, then cracks a joke. Close quote. Ran another. You get the point. Immediately, I remember thinking, is that really a joke? Or is it more like what anyone, usually someone around 9 or 10 years old, shouts or responds when they don't know what to say, and usually out of guilt of not knowing an answer? In logical fallacy, as we said the other day, it's known as a tuquoque. It's a so's your mama retort. That means zero and is frankly little more than juvenile. As I say, underlying this is not the biggest deal. Joe Biden can and could take all the time he wanted to pick whoever he wanted to be as vice president, but what was signaled in this jape or exchange is what's of interest. I always believed small things can say big things, and Joe Biden never says big things except when he tries, and then he usually screws up, usually with a word salad or a racial insult intended or not. He's just not that good to do much better than that. But what Joe Biden shouted out was not funny, not in any definition of funny, and it wasn't a joke. It was a gut response of unseriousness. But more than that, it showed he couldn't even just be a normal person. I mean, why would he have not shouted out, you'll be the first to know soon, or I'll tell the world shortly? Why not just be serious about it? The other point is in his response of you. Who is it? You. His response of you was that he created a moment of absolute zero news. But it was picked up and played as news and as a joke. Joe Biden is not only vim and vigorous, he has a good sense of humor, by the way. And by a lot of media. Oh, Joe was joking with the press. Joe was having fun with the media. Joe was teasing during exercise. And the rest of the media just parlayed that. The story we all got then was that 77-year-old Joe can ride a bike and joke. Great. A lot of 10-year-olds can do that, too. What does or did it mean about anything? The running mate thing was interesting, and it wasn't, but the issue comes with seriousness now, as Joe can no longer joke, and the issue of his successor is now a very serious one. One might say, not a joke. What we have all learned in the ribbon that stretches from the moment on his bike in 2020 to yesterday is that Joe isn't quick and isn't smart and isn't familiar with even his own administration's talking points about his own family. Nonetheless, the press had and has propelled Joe to seem athletic and funny, of which he is neither, which means that the real joke we are living through is on us. But we do that a lot now, don't we? We just go along with what we may call fictions. They may have, indeed most do, have important implications and prescriptions, but we just go along with them, don't we? The most important cultural issue, or second most, depending on the day in this country right now and since, is probably the issue of race— which would be why Kamala Harris continually tries to attack Ron DeSantis and Florida on it, because backfilling that attack is the ongoing insistence that America is a fundamentally racist society, institutionally so, and that one party, Republicans, want it that way. People weren't paying too much attention in 2016 when Hillary Clinton said we all suffered from implicit bias, but that was, that was the real dog whistle. 
We are told Donald Trump speaks in dog whistles. We are told that Ron DeSantis speaks in dog whistles. We are told that all Republicans talk in dog whistles, saying things in code that receive a wink and a nod from race haters. We go along with that charge, too, even as we're told Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis are too explicit and brutish in their language. So we just go along with two contradictions, because if one won't work as a condemnation, the other just might. So might as well float it. But what Hillary said about implicit bias was the true dog whistle, as I said, to an academic and intellectual elite that believes America is systemically racist. And that's the odd thing about implicit bias. Whether we're told we suffer from it, all of us, from an older white lady, or whether we're told we suffer from it from a younger white lady, like Robin DeAngelo, the best-selling author of the book White Fragility. That's the funny thing about this whole thing we just all go along with. We're told we all suffer from it, mostly by white people, and yet we invest hopes and dreams, as in Clinton, or money and intellectual time, as in Robin DeAngelo, listening to them and taking them seriously as if they have been able to supersede and overcome their own implicit biases to lecture us on ours. As if the first person to say implicit bias, back to an 11-year-old game, I guess, is immune from the charge themselves, kind of like calling shotgun in a car ride or jinx in a childish contest of words. To put it clearly, I, white person, should be listened to as I am recognizing all white people are racist, whether they know it or not, admit it or not, and I should be listened to about this to help you understand how racist you are too. Funny thing about that game Most racists don't try to expose and prove the odiousness of their racist beliefs. They usually try to defend them. But when we are all racist by dint of our color as white, somehow we all just go along and take seriously white people, especially white women, telling us we are all racists and need to deal with it, apologize for it, or compensate for it. The other funny thing about it, if you admit your own guilt, what do you have to teach me or instruct me on other than your own story? You have no credibility to lecture or instruct me on mine, right? The idea of indicting someone for your own guilt or errancy is just another funny thing about modern society we all just go along with. It used to be called disqualification. I mean, how many criminal convicts are allowed to be prosecutors, much less even become members of the legal bar? Do arsonists get to join fire departments? Do traitors get to become members of our military? Do drunk drivers get to be truckers or chauffeurs or even keep their licenses to drive? I'm reminded of the Ralph Waldo Emerson line, the louder he spoke of his honor, the faster we counted our spoons. Which all reminds me of the pseudo-sophisticated intellectual infancy or conceit from the Academy in the 1980s and 1990s. Alan Bloom got to it well in his book, The Closing of the American Mind, where he wrote, quote, There is one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of. Almost every student entering the university believes or says he believes that truth is relative. If this belief is put to the test, one can count on the student's reaction. They will be uncomprehending. That anyone should regard the proposition as not self-evident astonishes them as though they were calling into question 2 plus 2 equals 4. These are things you don't think about. The students' backgrounds are as various as America can provide. Some are religious, some atheists, some to the left, some to the right, some intend to be scientists, some humanists or professionals or businessmen, some are poor, some are rich. They are unified only in their relativism and in their allegiance to equality. And the two are related in a moral intention. 
The relativity of truth is not a theoretical insight, but a moral postulate, the condition of a free society, or so they see it. They have all been equipped with this framework early on. It is the modern replacement for the inalienable natural rights that used to be the traditional American grounds for a free society. Close quote. And of course, the funny thing we all just went along with was when someone could say there was no such thing as absolute truth. If you question them on this, they did not understand. They themselves were admitting, they themselves were postulating at that very moment their own absolute truths. Judgment. This all gave birth to another piece of nonsense we all just kind of went along with, that one should be not judgmental, not about lifestyle choices, not about other cultures, not about other countries, not about other people. And yet we knew deep down that this was also a conceit. For people make rational judgments every single day in forming contracts and deciding on partnerships, legal or familiar, and in deciding court cases, criminal and civil. So deep down was it a ruse that today there are no more judgmental people than those who used to cast the pitch to us not to be judgmental. The liberals and the left, they judge us all the time about whether we are racist, about what we think, about what motivates our thinking, and about our intelligence levels. Which brings us to another noun that has lost favor, if not currency, hypocrisy. It used to be a hell of a negative indictment of someone or something. It had nearly the same potency, nearly, as calling someone a racist. One thinks about its potency in the 1980s, for example, where some preachers of moralism in the name of God were found to have been engaged in something awfully close to prostitution, but certainly the violation of the commandment against adultery. I'm thinking of your Jimmy Bakers and Jimmy Swaggarts. That hypocrisy we took so seriously that we even indiscriminately denounced and distrusted the real preachers, the real pastors, those in their business who never went down those roads. We allowed it to taint an entire part of religion in America. Hypocrisy was such a potent charge once, we used to think of it as the respect or homage vice paid to virtue, and that it hurt everybody. Today, when we call a political leader a hypocrite, it means nearly nothing. It's almost as if we wished there were a better word. But this is all what happens when you defy common sense and go along with things you know are simply not true because of the conceit of the pseudo-intellectual age, where you either have forgotten the natural right arguments or you want to be considered part of the in-crowd. But in all our nodding at all this, let us remember the conclusion to the Hans Christian Andersen story of the emperor in his new clothes that I was referencing earlier. It goes like this. Everyone in the streets and the windows said, oh, how fine are the emperor's new clothes. Don't they fit him to perfection and see his long train? Nobody would confess that they couldn't see anything, for that would prove him either unfit for his position or a fool. No costume the emperor had worn before was ever such a complete success was the fiction they had to maintain. But he hasn't got anything on, said a little child. Did you ever hear such innocent prattle, said its father. And one person whispered to another what the child had said. He hasn't anything on. A child is saying he hasn't anything on. But he hasn't anything on, the whole town ultimately cried out at last. The emperor shrivered, for he suspected they might just be right. But he thought... This procession has got to go on. So he walked more proudly than ever as his nobleman held high the train that wasn't there at all. 
Nobody would confess the truth, for they didn't want to be seen as foolish. Today, one might say racist or an idiot. Finally, a truth-teller did appear, a child, because children know when they are being swindled in a way we sophisticated adults convince ourselves against, especially if someone with a Ph.D. or in a high station says something. And so I fear where we are today. Too many holding high a train they truly know isn't there at all in all of our cultural and political disagreements. And I worry more. Joe Biden may himself even suspect it, but he walks more proudly than ever as his entourage hold high the train that isn't there. It's not a joke. None of it is. Indeed, it's deadly serious. Literally. Pretty incredible guitar playing there. That's Thano Sanas. Thano and Dimitri do my uh, top-of-the-hour intro music, and you've heard me talk about them here. It's nice to see uh, ASU is uh, having them perform at their Curse Summer Sessions. I just tweeted it out. If you're not doing anything Saturday, August 19th, uh, they're playing at the ASU Curse Center. Uh, again, you can go to my Twitter feed to see more information, and my Twitter is, uh, account is at uh, Seth Liebson. So that that's great. And uh, I think I'm going to drag Thano in here tomorrow, have him talk with us a little bit. Just a great guy, great musician. I've known these guys 80 years. Um, okay, what did I – oh, yes, Iran is in the news as the U.S. is in the news because we just freed up uh, 6 to $7 billion in uh, exchange for uh, American hostages – that Iran uh, was holding. Did you know Iran was holding American hostages? Did you? Did you know that? Uh, this is not a story that gets a lot of press, is it? Um, but Iran has been holding American hostages. And uh, today, the Biden administration has released, uh, as I say, six and a half billion dollars, which is more than their um, more than their annual defense budget over in Iran. Um, to uh, release these uh, hostages. Good idea? Or an incentive for them to take more hostages like we engaged in in the 80s? Uh, that's what I would say. Uh, this, this is a country that engages in taking American hostages, and that is, in fact, uh, more of what they will do because they know that they can hold America hostage for ransom, and we just paid that ransom. What's the matter? Why are you giving me a weird look? Uh, yes, we just paid that ransom. Six billion dollars to Iran. And by the way, shame on the media. Shame on the media for not reminding Americans that this country we're trying to strike a deal with is holding American hostages. I'm happy for the hostages coming home. Believe me, I am. But is this the way to do it or is this the way to guarantee more will be taken? The answer is the latter. We have, let's see. 79, over 45 years, over 50 years of experience with this in Iran, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. The result is never different. It's always the same. Are global leaders developing solutions that promote freedom and quality of life, or are they creating problems, enforcing solutions that only benefit the elite? Midas Gold Group believes it's the latter, from draconian COVID restrictions, the decimation of small businesses, and changed election laws, which 
may have resulted in a Biden presidency, Midas believes your finances will be next. Under the guise of protecting you, you'll get monetary expansion, national debt, and reduced purchasing power, and their central bank digital currency will virtually eliminate your your savings and purchasing privacy. The answer? Convert a portion of your savings, or IRA, to physical gold and silver. Precious metals are a private currency used to store wealth throughout history. Thousands of you already trust the veterans at the Midas Gold Group because they're fighting for your financial freedom and privacy. They're the only precious metals dealer Seb Gorka and I use and trust. Call Midas Gold Group at 480-360-3000. That's 480-360-3000. Or visit them online at MidasGoldGroup.com. Stephen Hayward reports that the New York Times is apparently, speaking of jokes, trying to pass off satire as news that's later feature about the awesome Vice President Kamala Harris. The headline is this, quote, Kamala Harris takes on a forceful new role in 2024 campaign. The subhead, the Vice President is trying to reclaim the momentum that propelled her to Joseph Biden's side as a candidate and into the White House in 2020. Close quote. The story proceeds along these lines. Once a rising star as a senator in California, Ms. Harris has for years been saddled by criticism of her performance as vice president. She has struggled with difficult assignments on issues such as the roots of illegal immigration and the narrow path to enduring voting rights protections. Concerns about her future spread as Democrats ponder whether she would be a political liability for the ticket. It's good to have her out there, said Cedric Richmond, a senior advisor for the DNC, who added the the vice president's decision to take on the Republican Party was central to the campaign's 2024 strategy. It also keeps President Biden above the fray. Mr. Richmond said he is still uniting the West against Russian aggression. She can go highlighting the accomplishments and she can take on people like DeSantis. Meanwhile... Kamala said on TV recently that, in fact, there are several polls showing that, quote, I have a terrific approval rating, close quote. This proved too much even for PolitiFact, which glumly reports that, quote, public polling results do not support her assertion. We rate the statement as false. Yes, of course, it is false. She has the lowest opinion ratings, the lowest favorability ratings of any vice president at this point in her tenure because she says stupid things all the time, probably because she is stupid. That line she keeps using, what can be unburdened by what has been, is her go-to. Here she is, um, I guess, teaching people about the nature of democracy. The nature of democracy is, is it's, there, there are two sides to it in terms of the nature of it. There's a duality. On the one hand, when democracy is intact, it is incredibly strong in terms of the strength it bestows on the individuals in terms of their rights and their freedoms. Incredibly strong in terms of what it does for its people. On the other hand, it's very fragile. A democracy will only be as intact as our willingness to fight for it. And so fight we must and fight we will. Doesn't that really motivate you? (laughs) It's very strong when it's intact. 
and it's very weak if we don't. I, you know, I just we're supposed to take this as wisdom. We're supposed to take this as leadership. We're supposed to take this at all, and it's frankly unbearable. It's unbearable lightness, and she's the one with her wits. She's the one in the administration who isn't compromised by a failing issue due to natural age medical problems. That's the one with her wits. Folks, we're in trouble here. We're in trouble. And what I don't know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is whether the American people hate Republican policies so much that they're going to continue with this trouble which I think will make us more fragile than we've ever been before, to use Kamala Harris's words. We'll be right back. You want me to mention our Resist the Drift conference? This is kind of cool. As many of you know, uh, 960 The Patriot has partnered with Focus on the Family for a two-day marriage conference. It's on August 25th and 26th. It's at the Central Christian Church in Gilbert. And we're giving away some exclusive VIP tickets for our Resist the Drift conference. You and your spouse could be one of 10 lucky couples who get to attend the conference on the house, on us. And five couples will be invited to attend our pre-conference VIP meet-and-greet reception hosted by me, yours truly. You and your spouse could have the special opportunity to also meet the speakers, Greg and Aaron Smalley, including an intimate Q&A session and great appetizers. In addition to all this, VIP ticket holders get reserved seating at the conference and a workbook to use during the weekend's four sessions of impactful teaching. So for a chance to win tickets and meet Greg and Aaron Smalley, go to 960thepatriot.com and click on the event banner. And if you're not feeling lucky, you can always just buy the tickets too, also at 960thepatriot.com. What's your pin say today, young David? I've got one that says, hello, Republicans in 1932. <laughs> and goodbye, Republicans in 1932. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what this is from? Uh, well, I assume the 1932 election. Yeah, this is uh, from the 1932 uh, RNC, which I think it was in uh, Chicago. Okay. Yeah, and I'm wearing it because it's Herbert Hoover's birthday. Herbert Hoover's birthday today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think he carried a total of five states that year. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, no, <laughs> maybe. I, no I, th- I think that's right. Uh, underestimated intellect, uh, maybe at one point, maybe at one point held the world record for the most honorary degrees of any American citizen. Really? I didn't know yeah, that. I yeah, I think so. I think so. I know for a while there he had the longest post-presidency until Jimmy Carter. That uh, would make sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. Until the early 70s, I yep. would say. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Yep. Do we need to talk about your slur on this book here? Do we need a moment on conservatism? Mm-hmm. This book has been on my desk for some years. It's called Neoconservatism, Selected Essays, 1949 to 1995 by Irving Kristol. And young David said to me, why would you have that book on your desk? Well, I was wondering because yes. it doesn't seem like we like to associate with those who call themselves neocons or right. neoconservatives. Right. And this is something I've spoken about once or twice before, that the phrase neoconservatism has gotten a wrong rap, not a bad rap, but a wrong rap. It has come to stand for a certain view of foreign policy adventurism, and it probably first received that viewpoint from the left during the Bush years, 
but it's now been obviously absorbed by just not just the left but the left and the right but it is a mistake to dismiss all of neoconservatism that way because it never was in its original form a foreign policy set of theories neoconservatism was founded in the 1960s by a couple scholars almost exclusively on domestic policy. Irving Kristol was one of them. His son, William Kristol, is the one who expanded the notion into foreign policy. But there was a whole series of important scholars prior to him that made it about domestic policy. So you had Norman Podhoritz on race, Irving Kristol on urban affairs. Um, you had uh, James Q. Wilson on crime. Uh, you had William Bennett on education and welfare. And to just prove the point, young David, this book, Neoconservatism by Irving Kristol, Selected Essays from 1945. Sounds really interesting. Just to prove the point, I'd like you to take it over the weekend and tell me what you think of it because it has, uh, let's see, 41 essays. Not one of them on foreign policy. Left to earmark which ones I should read. Uh, you know what? <laughs> now, start start at the beginning and just go through them. The first is on race, sex, and family. First section is on race, sex, and family. Second section is on the adversary culture to the counterculture. Third section is on capitalism and the democratic idea. The uh, let's see, what did I say? That was the third section. That no, was the fourth section. The fifth section is on the conservative prospect, American historians, urban civilization. Uh, new Populism. Uh, the sixth section is on religion, and the seventh section is reflections. Now, I uh, often will quote Irving Kristol. Again, it's not to quote his son. His son is a totally different character. William Kristol is not his father, Irving. Irving was a world-class scholar, the author of this book and the founder of neoconservatism, and almost never wrote anything on foreign policy, always on domestic and there's a very important essay in here titled Life Without Father. I remember reading it in the Wall Street Journal in 1994. It kicked off the entire concern that uh, now operates in the conservative movement and has been probably taken up and championed uh, most uh, vocally by Larry Elder, that the importance of fatherhood to civil society, the most important, the importance of fatherhood to the prevention of crime, the importance of fatherhood when it comes to a welfare debate. So I'll just give you a, uh, the opening of this piece when, uh, from Irving Kristol. One of the incontestable findings of modern social science is that fathers are very important people. I confess to have, this was in 1994, I confess to having been astonished to discover just how important we are important in all sorts of unexpected ways. Thus, it turns out that almost two-thirds of rapists, three-quarters of adolescent murderers, and the same percentage of long-term prison inmates are young males who grew up without fathers. I doubt that many fathers have understood their mission in life had anything to do with the prevention of rape, murder, or long-term imprisonment among their sons. There are other pertinent statistics. When a father is present in the household— Excuse me. When a father is present in the household, teenage girls get pregnant 50% less frequently than their fatherless counterparts. Just why this is so is not clear, though it is highly doubtful that it results from heart-to-heart -heart educational talks about sex. 
In addition, children in a mother-father household are less likely to drop out of school, get involved with drugs, be delinquent, or, and this is a surprise, suffered, suffer from child abuse. The essay goes on. I remember it very well back in the day when essays of import in the Wall Street Journal lasted for a long time. But anyway, that's what neoconservatism was all about, Charlie Brown, young David. Uh, domestic policy, uh, Irving Crystal's son, tended to corrupt it. Chris Matthews really corrupted it in his attacks on the Ed Bush administration, making it all about foreign policy. And it's come to stand for a view of foreign policy it was never intended to do. Yeah, and I don't believe you should... With a different uh, sort of... Right. Yeah, and I don't believe you should attach... Um, fathers and children as having always the same beliefs. Uh, If you need examples of that, just look at Ron Reagan Jr. versus Ronald Reagan himself, Mm. or Christopher Buckley versus William Buckley. We can play this game all day. The sons are not always the same as their fathers. Sometimes they're as good as, and as Horace puts it, the great dream of every father is that his son will supersede his father's achievements but they're not always the same. All right, we'll be right back. Think about the economy, and you have bank failures, you have stock market volatility, you have speculation of a recession, and even today, news of increased inflation. So where do you go to invest? Why Refi has an investment it's in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return not correlated to the stock market or the Fed. It's a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal. You need your money back at any time. There are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio from Y-Refi, and Y-Refi is blessedly based here locally. I encourage you to stop by their offices on Scottsdale Road and the 101. I have, and I can tell you, you won't get a sales pitch, and no one's going to ask you to sign a thing. But when you do meet with the team at Y-Refi, you'll see why I trust them so much, and you can too. Y-Refi is a due diligence-approved firm, and you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right. A 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or call them at, give them a call at 888-YREFI-34. That's 888-YREFI-34. Okay, this looks interesting to me. Raymond in Scottsdale wants me to understand elephants. Hello, Raymond. Hello. <laughs> How are you? Before. How I'm are wonderful. You? Thank good, you. good, good, uh, good. When you get a chance, or so your listeners can Google, teenage elephants need a father figure. Ah. Okay. Uh, this is a story. Uh, it's a fascinating story about young elephants between uh, 15 and 18 years old uh, were transported from one area of Africa. Yes, the Palanisberg experiment. Yes, I know it well. Yes, Yes, we wrote about it in a book called The Broken Hearth. Yes, 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 yes. This is fascinating. Keep going, Raymond. Incredible. Yeah. And uh, they they couldn't transport any of the bull elephants. That's right. Father figures because they were too heavy. That's right. So these teenage elephants started rampaging. Yeah. They formed formed groups. Yep, gangs. gangs, Right, right. Violent gangs, yeah. Killing, killing the rhinos yep. and everything. So as, as soon as they they brought some large male bull elephants in, their 
testosterone level. That's right. They pacified again. You you told the story exactly right. That's exactly right, Raymond. This is someone, I think an ABC News reporter who covered it said it might have been the biggest, uh, the most important Big Brother experiment in history because elephants are usually docile. But you removed the fathers and they became marauders. You brought the fathers in. It restored order. Yeah. Well done, Raymond. Palanisburg. What more do we need to know? What more do we need to know? Well done. Well done. Yeah, we write that up in The Broken Hearth by William J. Bennett. Uh, came out around 2001, I think. Anyway, yeah, good work. Be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.